Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 71. Happy Texas Wine Month. Today, Clay Roop joins me. Clay is one of the founders of Texas Wine Club, and he has a special affinity for Texas wine history. So today we're talking about history, from the early history of Spanish missionaries bringing viticulture to Texas in the mid-1600s through the TV Munson days. Clay and I agree that every Texan should know about TV Munson. First, I'll share some Texas wine news. Whether you're a regular listener or tuning in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Amy Beth Wright is a major wine writer and also a listener of this podcast. Wine Enthusiast published her most recent Texas Wine article. It's called, As Texas Wine Gathers Strength, Six AVAs Are on the Horizon. Amy Beth shares that there are six new AVAs on the horizon for Texas, three with applications in motion and another three soon to be proposed. To illustrate her point that many Texas winemakers want more geographic definition and visibility, she interviewed a number of Texas winemakers and shares information about the three AVAs that are in process. Two of them we've discussed on this podcast, and the third was new to me. Lano Uplift and Hickory Sands are the two that are currently in process and have been referenced before on this podcast. The third is Hidden Waters AVA in the far west part of the state near El Paso. In the article, Danny Heredia, owner of Del Valley Vineyards, says that he believes that the proposed AVA will help cement a sense of place. He says, AVAs are always part of the conversation. Different regions known for different things, create more of an identity that we can all take advantage of and be proud of. Although the AVA proposal and name was new to me, the region wasn't. Way back in my episode with Yano Estacado winemaker Jason Sintani, he discussed the really unusual growing conditions in that part of the state. That was episode 36 from January 2022, if you want to go back and take another listen. The article also mentions three other areas in the state where AVAs may emerge in the future. One is another nested AVA in the Hill Country, which might be called Pedernales River Basin AVA. There's also talk of a Cross Timbers AVA and a Gulf Coast AVA. Be sure to check out Amy Beth's article for all the details about the whopping six AVAs that may be coming our way. San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo recently released results from the International Wine Competition, and a few big congratulations are in order. The grand champion of the event was the 2022 Adega Vino Viognier Reserve from the Texas High Plains from Visart Vineyards. This is the first time that a Texas winery has won grand champion in the wine competition's 14-year history. In a social media post, Adega Vino said, It is an absolute honor to know our Viognier was ranked as the top wine of the whole lot of 913 wines from around the world. They give a massive shout out to their grower partner, Visart Vineyards, for growing the brilliant Viognier that made this wine possible. Congratulations, too, to the best of herd Texas winery, Pedernales Cellars. The Best of Show Red Wine was the 2022 Frio Canyon Vineyard Reserve Tempranillo from Texas Hill Country. The Best of Show White Wine was the 2022 Wedding Oak Winery Roussan from the Texas High Plains, Phillips Vineyard. And the Best of Show Texas Rosé went to the 2022 McPherson Cellars Lake Copain Rosé, also from the Texas High Plains. Tickets are on sale now for that championship wine auction dinner, which is Thursday, November 16th at the Shrine Auditorium in San Antonio. Beverage Dynamics is the largest and most respected national magazine dedicated to the needs of the off-premise beverage alcohol retailer. Whether it's the owner of a single liquor store, the general manager of a warehouse store, or a buyer for a large supermarket or drug chain. In the most recent edition, there was an article about American wines, and it featured ratings for several Texas wines. 
Two Texas wines earned the article's highest scores at 98, and they are the Bending Branch 2019 Texas Tanat and the Newsom Vineyards 2019 Inception, which is a blend of Syrah, Sangiovese, and Tanat. Six other wines earned scores of 91 or above, and they include the Slate Theory 2019 Montepulciano, Bending Branch Winery 2019 Petite Syrah, McPherson Cellars 2019 La Herencia, McPherson Cellars 2022 Pickpool Blanc, Newsom Vineyards 2022 Albarino, and Parr Vineyards 2022 Viognier. Well, Wimberley, Texas is the latest spot in the Texas Hill Country to get some attention from a big travel publication. It's the focus of the Travel and Leisure article, This Texas Hill Country Town is home to natural swimming holes, wineries, and 50 giant cowboy boots. The wineries that are named are Limestone Terrace Vineyards, Seventh Sun Vineyards, and Wimberley Valley Wine. Texas Hill Country wineries are coming to Fort Worth for an exciting evening of wine tasting. On November the 6th, they're bringing 23 wineries and over 70 wines for a tasting opportunity. You'll get to meet winemakers and winery owners, vineyard managers, and more. That's all happening at Tana Hills Tavern and Music Hall. There's a walk-around tasting from 6 to 8 And I look forward to seeing many podcast listeners and Texas wine drinkers there. Tickets are $75 per person and only 200 will be sold. But guess what? Texas Hill Country Wineries offered me a pair of tickets to give away to podcast listeners. So if you'd like to be entered into the drawing, email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com by the end of the day on Tuesday, October 24th. I'll randomly select a winner on the 25th and will notify the winner that day. I hope all Texas wineries will consider completing the Silicon Valley Bank's annual State of the Wine Industry Survey. It takes about 15 minutes and it's completely anonymous. As a survey participant, you will receive the complete anonymous results, top-level analysis, and insightful charts and benchmarks. These results are only distributed to those who complete the online survey. I would just love to have Texas results, a specific section within the results for Texas wineries. So I hope everyone will participate in the survey, and I'll drop that link into the show notes. To find links for all these stories, visit thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. If you found value from this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting the podcast with a donation. You can do that on the website, thisistexaswine.com, and then click support the podcast. I have a regular supporter who sends me a nice note and a virtual glass of Texas wine every time he listens to a new podcast, and I sure do appreciate that regular support. And just last week, I had two new supporters who sent in some virtual Texas wine with nice notes. Carrie said, I enjoy your podcast so much and learn something new every episode. It really adds to my enjoyment of Texas wine. It's fun to hear from and about the people that drive the industry. And Morgan said, thank you for being an amazing advocate of Texas wine and a great podcast host. Well, thanks to all of you. My self-funded Texas wine travel just took me to San Antonio to judge the San Antonio Stock Show and Rodeo Wine Competition. And next, I'll be heading to Houston to judge the Rodeo Uncorked International Wine Competition, which is affiliated with the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. It's a pleasure, but it does add up. Thanks, y'all. Clay Roop started in Texas wine back in 2019, first in marketing at Hoover Valley Vineyards and then at William Chris Vineyards, where he was director of wine education. Now he's one of the founders of Texas Wine Club. In this interview, you'll hear about what really excites Clay about Texas wine, and that's the history of the industry. We chat about everything from Texas viticulture's early start to some legendary figures like T.V. Munson and someone who was new to me called Gilbert Onderdonk. All the while, we're referencing what we learned in Dr. Russ Kane's Specialist of Texas Wine classes. Enjoy. I attended your class at Texas Wine Club in High, 
before I started teaching Texas Wine Club experiences in Dallas. And so some of the things that we're going to be talking about today, I heard from you in that class, because although I've spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about the modern Texas wine industry, I don't always start it back at the very beginning. And Mm -hmm. I know that's a particular interest of yours. So I thought we could spend this time going back to the very beginning of Texas wine and talking about a few um, of the highlights. I have learned this as of you. I know you've done the class with Russ Kane. Mm-hmm. And so I have touched on some of the historical aspects of Texas wine, but I thought we could explore that a little further today. Yeah. And what's fun about the exploration of history is that because it goes back multi-generations, there's really no hard and fast answers. There are sometimes more questions than answers. So I think we're going to have Lots of questions and maybe not as many answers, but it will be a fun exploration. Yes. One of the things that made an impression on me in that class is you have a map of the United States and it shows the route that the Franciscan monks, is that how you refer to them? Yeah. The, I've referred just to them as Spanish missionaries, but they essentially, you know, Spain expanded to this part of the the hemisphere starting in South America, really Argentina, and worked their way north. And in that process of, I guess the word it wouldn't be colonialism, but the creating missions, creating missions had a, a higher purpose. Um, and of course, sacrament wine is a big part of um, their ceremony. And so you need a vineyard and you need wine. And so everywhere they went, the vine went. So they brought the grape that has many names, but known as Mission Grape, uh, also known as Pais, P-A-I-S, a.k.a. Listan Pareto, also known as El Paso Grape. It's got a few names. Um, but They worked their way up eventually into California, but in the process they had to pass through Texas and New Mexico. And so El Paso is considered the first place in the United States where the European grape was first planted. Now, at that time, El Paso was New Mexico. So you see this a few times in in our industry and others in terms of claiming who was first. So New Mexico will say they were first. (laughs) The Texans will also say they were first. But there's no argument it wasn't in the El Paso area. Um, And... We were a good 100 years uh, before California in terms of growing the vinifera grape, which is meant for fine wine. That blows my mind. Yeah. Because everyone, well, I don't know about everyone, but people who have in this generation perhaps come to drinking wine think that California is where it all started. And in fact, there were, there were vineyards prior to those in California. Right here in Texas. And Again, a little hat tip to Mexico. They were about 80 years before Texas. Yep. Um, and it's fascinating because, so yes, the the Franciscan monks were making their way and went up to El Paso. And it kind of split. They're kind of two ways. They kind of went north further into New Mexico. Um, so I, that could be a reason why New Mexico kind of lays more claim. Because after El Paso, they didn't go back into interior So it was kind of a Mm -hmm. pass-through, and they did plant multiple vineyards in New Mexico and, of course, uh, eventually carved their path uh, way out west and up into California. Again, kudos to Russ Kane for bringing a lot of this information to light through his uh, Specialist of Wine course. Um, But for about 150 years, the number one agricultural crop in West Texas was Grapes and wine. We don't know much about that wine, do we? We know that, I believe, around 1868, I think it was a high official in the U.S. Army who was reporting to people on, I think it was the East Coast, and said that the wines of El Paso are the the finest wines that can be found in the United States. And somehow that word got to uh, French and Italians there was a period in the 1800s where it was, quote, known and established that Texas had the finest wines in the United States. 
Very cool. Yeah. That's a great place to start. It gets a little murky between that like late 1800s up until prohibition. It's probably the most challenging area to find information. And just in case you didn't, weren't aware, it seems to be the case. And with uh, a lot of uh, research in terms of Texas, it's weird. It's like this period where you, there's speculation. Like I think Russ mentioned there was multiple wineries. I think I've read up to 50. Um, I do know there was some other wineries specifically in Fredericksburg. And I think Russ does acknowledge this, that after El Paso, again, that was a process of the Spanish and they had other plans and they had other destinations. But the, the, there was three places in Texas where when word got out that this was a viable uh, opportunity in terms of agriculture and having a product, it was Belleville, which actually I don't even know where that is, New Braunfels, and Fredericksburg. Those were the three places. I think that's fairly well established. Those are the first three cities in Texas that went in to grow grapes for the purpose of making wine that were not missionaries. Hmm. Um, and of course, we still have Valverde Winery um, and the Qualias, um, which were growing. Do you recall what grapes they were growing there? Oh, yeah. Actually, I have it in Russ's notes here. Black Spanish and Herbemont. Yeah. I'm not even familiar with that. It's a white it's a juice, white. Mm-hmm. black grape, it says. Those are those are the two grapes that, if you explore Texas wines, you're eventually going to run into those. Russ talks a little bit about the influx of um, other cultures coming into Texas. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think this is relevant. So the Quelias were of Italian descent. Um, you also had the the Dutch coming in from the East Coast, um, which there's two main legends of Texas wine. So T.V. Munson, of course, being the main one. Uh, but Gilbert Onderdonk, which is not a name you really see that much of in our Texas wine materials, but Jim Thomas was the one who said, if you were going to talk about Texas history, don't forget Onderdonk. See if I can I've get never heard done. of the guy. O-N-D-E-R, Onderdonk. This guy, my, okay. So, Onderdonk is from New York, from Dutch ancestry, moves to Indianola, Texas, which is somewhere between Corpus Christi and Houston. And he moves there when he was 18 years old. He starts working for a reverend and starts raising horses. And four years later, raises a herd of horses horses, and basically does a, he drives them all the way to Missouri, sells them, and comes back and buys 236 acres, somewhere around 200 plus, and creates uh, the largest nursery in the state of Texas. And grapes was a, a big part of that. So he was really the first to propagate grapes to be able to be dispersed to other locations and all the way up into uh, Louisiana. Okay. And before he made his way to Texas at the age of 11, he was, he created multiple varieties of potatoes and was basically an established horticulturist early on comes into Texas. He seemed like this guy did everything. He enlists in the, the army, Texas infantry goes into the civil war comes back, raises horses, sells them, buys a bunch of land. Then after he, ex- he expanded his vineyard to uh, a location about 15 to 20 miles northwest of Indianola and names it Nursery Texas. Oh, cool. And it's, a, yeah, he basically created a city, becomes the postmaster general, and started mentoring T.V. Munson, which we'll get into a little bit later. So those two uh, kind of worked hand-in-hand to propagate grapes. But yeah, he's kind of lost, so you don't hear much about Onderdonk. And then the the Germans started coming in to Texas, and what they were doing were bringing in vines from the old world. I don't know if you've heard of this, Um, but there's 
many stories about existing grapevines from that time period. Have you heard of this? No. So here in the Hill Country, there's, there's actually one in Fredericksburg on Main Street at the Pioneer Museum. Mm-hmm. There's a vine that is clearly old, 100 plus years old. And we actually went and checked it out and actually brought uh, the viticulture team from William Chris to come check it out, prune it up because it's basically just been you know, doing its thing naturally for so many years. Um, we haven't had it tested yet, but we know it's a Tenterior grape. It's most likely Black Spanish, mm-hmm. which of course is a hybrid. So it most likely is not going to be an actual vinifera grape from from Germany. So Germans came in, they were bringing their vines. So there was a winemaking culture from, from them. But yeah, it kind of fizzled out. Um, and then when prohibition hit, it didn't really bounce back. There was a period of 40, 50 years, right? Where we didn't really have anything, which there's, what do you think the reason is? Well, I'm curious to know. I was just saying before we started recording that based on a presentation that Maureen Qualia gave Mm -hmm. at the Women for Wine Sense conference in Fredericksburg in May, she, she had a couple of thoughts about why Texas did not pick up like California did. And one of her areas of interest was that UC Davis was created shortly after prohibition ended and that the academic environment is one of the things that fueled the California wine industry, or that was my takeaway. I don't know if she would quote just like that, but what are you telling me? Okay. the reason? So again, I, I can only speculate, but I do know that, yes, I would say that cause it was the year after, right? Prohibition was repealed when they started UC Davis. Um, once prohibition started, the the demand for wine didn't decrease. It's just the supply was decreased. So now you have a black market. Um, I'm sure you've heard about the the vineyards in California, how they would, you could still buy grapes. And it would say, whatever you do, don't do these things yes. because that will create wine. Yes, whatever yes. you do, don't add this packet that's included that has yeast and don't <laughs> yes. accidentally add that to the grapes and allow it to ferment. And Heaven forbid, wine. yes. Heaven forbid. Um, so there was a lot of homemade winemaking going on. And then, of course, you had the, the, uh, the bootlegging that was going on with the, the hard liquor and the, the stills. Um, and with wine specifically, because it was basically left up to people to make their own bathtub wines. And I'm sure there was some probably local people that had versions of stills that were creating wine. But they would heavily sweeten the wines. So after 10 plus years of people drinking very sweetened wines, when prohibition was repealed, and in this specifically, I know happened in California, just more uh, evidence of it in California. Um, they would call them the ghost wineries because when prohibition happened, of course they shut down. Now there was always, there was a few exceptions because much like Valverde, they were able to keep making wines. Um, so they saw the opportunity like, okay, now that, Prohibition's repealed. Let's get these wineries up and running. Um, and, you know, all the money that would take to get them operational again. You know, there is a little bit of lag time because, you know, five, five years for to get your fruit and time and barrel and all those things. Uh, so it's obviously an investment. And when the wines were complete after those, those years later, there wasn't a, a market for dry wines. Interesting. Um, and so even in California... I don't have the numbers, but I, it was more than half uh, that were essentially rebooted would fail. Uh, people had figured out either um, they either had an affinity for the sweet stuff or they can still make it or some combination, but the demand to actually buy fine wine you know, all but vanished. Hmm. And so and um, I know of uh, the Texas winery, which was uh, created in 1939 by an Austrian shut doors uh, 1950. And that's probably about the time you could figure out like, okay, there's no market for this. And I know there's more. I don't have uh, uh, all of the the names. It's something I'm definitely looking into, but I think that they just saw like, okay, you know, this guy spent 11 years trying to get it going. It didn't work. And so we're basically, it was until the seventies is when we first started getting some activity in our industry. It's interesting. I've seen some, posts on some of the Facebook groups in Texas wine about 
which Texas wineries got their permits, which years. And there are all sorts of reasons why a company may have had to be re-permitted for whatever reason, or we didn't know we needed a permit. And so we got one five years after we actually started operations. But I'm very interested in coming up with a list of the Texas wineries in the order that they received their permits and which ones are still around and which ones aren't. I would. There's got to be some government agency that has that. I think that would be fascinating because Valverde, do you remember the number that their permit was? Um, was I had it somewhere. Teens. I wanted to say it was 17. Yeah, 17. It says they didn't have a permit before and nobody told them they needed one. So they got their post-prohibition winery permit, number 17. Here's what Russ says about prohibition. Russ says, there were over 30 Texas wineries when the Volstead Act brought national prohibition, which was 1920 to 1933. Only one survived, and that was Valverde. They got post-prohibition winery permit 17 because they didn't have a permit before and nobody told them they needed one. After prohibition, 15 wineries opened but by the 1950s, only one was left, okay. and that was Valverde. So that, yeah, so they all tried to supply the wines that were in fashion before people got an affinity for homemade wines and sweet wines, and that lasts a few generations. So interesting. And well, I have heard that you can hide a multitude of sins in sweet wine, so if you're making it in your bathtub, maybe the sweet wine is all that would actually taste palatable. And then once you eradicate the, the fine wines in the European style, then not only do the customers want the sweet wines, but like you said, from the winemaking side, it's easier to make. Um, and you know, once you see, look like, what'd you say, uh, 30 wineries uh, tried to... 15 after okay, prohibition. 15. And yeah, they all floundered, so... yeah. Um, yeah, it, that would be interesting to see where, uh, cause you know, California had the, the ghost wineries and, you know, some of the estates that we still have today, they've just basically laid fallow for many years, but I don't know if there's any remaining structures. That'd be kind of interesting to see. It would be. Now yeah. I was talking with Ricky from Altamarfa mm-hmm. and he was, uh, also, you know, there was established vineyards in the El Paso area and we were discussing how, it would be fun to find old fallow vineyards. And I don't know if you heard the story about, this was on Psalm TV. They found some vineyards in LA area that were over a hundred years old, but they had been neglected for 40 or 50 years. And a wine maker went in and they pruned it up one season. And the next season they came back and they made uh, a few cases of wine from that. So the idea of doing that here in Texas seemed uh, plausible, but I haven't found the vineyards yet. But Ricky said he he thinks that most of the the vineyards that were in El Paso are long gone and have been built over. So mm-hmm. I don't even know if people in El Paso are aware that they had the finest wines in mm-hmm. America. I've been to the Sharp family property in Fort Davis. Mm-hmm. And so they have a beautiful new vineyard, but they also have the original old vineyard um, that's planted on a different part of their property. Was that the Blue Mountain yes. Vineyard? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was... Have you had the wines from that? I never have. I've heard their legendary Cabernet Sauvignon from the... That's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we basically... There's a large gap uh, after Prohibition. But to me, the most interesting part about our history is TV Munson. Yes, I was going to ask you about him next. You have a special affinity for researching TV Munson and talking about TV Munson. Well, when I first heard the story, I just almost couldn't believe it. Um, you know, growing up in Texas, you know, we learned about Johnny Appleseed, but why not TV Munson? I don't even know if Johnny Appleseed was a real person. I think he was. <laughs> um, so TV Munson by most accounts um, was absolutely instrumental in keeping the, not only France, but the European wine industry from basically collapsing. Um, So the 1860s, we started seeing transatlantic travel uh, through steamships. And I guess this would be an opportunity to kind of discuss the grape itself. So this is where you see a lot of discrepancies in terms of 
how many different species of grapes we have. I've seen up to, there's 200 native species in the United States, but much like with vinifera, and for those who are not that familiar with that term, essentially any wine grape name that you're familiar with, doesn't matter if it's an Italian Sangiovese or a Spanish Tempranillo or a French Chardonnay, those are all Vitis vinifera. So much like apples, there's variations. Um, so within the Vitis vinifera, you have thousands, right? Um, so I think that's how it can get a little bit, you know, how many genuses versus how many total. The number that I think is seems the most uh, accurate, and this comes from the international, uh, I think it's the International Grape and Wine Growers. Um, it's a horticulture institute. They said 60 to 65 in the United States. Um, most people have heard of Concord, like the yeah. jelly. Yeah. So Vitis Lambrusco and Concord were kind of the, the big shots on the East Coast. There's also uh, Scuppernog and there's some random ones that some people may or may not have heard of. But Texas actually has the most. So within the United States of endemic species, so there's 60 to 65 that are native, 25 are endemic, and Texas has 21 of those. So we have lots of grapes, very variations of varieties that the Europeans have never seen before. Right? So they started sending material over into Europe via London, and in the process, uh, after London, of course, they were dispersing it with other grape growers in France. So this is around the early 1860s. And when they sent the vines over, there was this louse, this little mite called phylloxera. And not that big of a deal of it landing in London because there's not a whole lot of wine growing there. But France, of course, is a different story. Um, at that time... I think one-sixth of all taxes in France came from the grape growing and wine industry. And within a fairly short duration, uh, two-thirds of the vineyards were completely gone. And we should say that this phylloxera existed in the United States, but the grapevines in the United States were not harmed by phylloxera because of their rootstock, which had adapted Correct. to that pest, they, right? They quite literally had a the the... The, the roots had a, a thick skin. Uh, the Venefra variety, the, the, the roots are quite thin, and they are susceptible to this, this louse that chews on the roots themselves. So the species uh, that are in the United States, they've essentially lived alongside of each, side of each other and had grown immune to their attacks. So when it got into Europe, they didn't know what was going on. Um, after, I think it was after 200 million acres had disappeared, they put out, you know, to all uh, horticulturists around the world, like someone figured this out. They were flooding vineyards. They were trying to figure out anything that would work. They, could, they had no idea. Again, almost 15 years, that's a long time, and you're just slowly seeing the, the, the vines disappear. So they had, at some point, and this is something we were talking about before, someone had realized that, okay, well, there's other grape species, and if the, the vinifera is not able to manage on its own the attacks from phylloxera, then grafting of some sort seems to be, in theory, that would work. And we know that there's a gentleman from Missouri. Those in Missouri, we apologize, uh, but he, he gave it a shot. But apparently the, the varieties that they were either suggesting um, or getting over to France, it didn't take or it didn't work, one of the two. Now, along the way, it was uh, Professor Viala was collaborating with this guy from Denison, Texas, named Thomas Volney Munson. And TV, actually, he went by Volney, which I recently oh, he did. found. Yeah. So Volney um, and Viala were corresponding, and at some point, when they kept failing, they decided to bring a delegation. So Viala brings a delegation to Texas. And here's where the story can alter, depend on um, what author or which book you source. But in a nutshell, I'll give you the, the nutshell version. This is what I tell in my class. Um, they make their way to Denison, Texas, and 
you know, at this time, they're, it's horse and buggies, so it's not easy to get around. But they make their way to north of Georgetown, a place called Belton, Texas. There's an area called Dog Ridge. Um, they filled up wagons full of clippings because with a vine, you can clip it and propagate that in the ground just by planting it. And they filled up multiple wagons, trained them to the East Coast, and then put them on a steamship and got them into France, planted those Texas varieties into the ground, grafted the European grape on top, so the Cabernet or the, the Chardonnay, and it took and absolutely solved the problem. Um, and so at that point, there was a huge demand for Texas rootstock. So this is actually where Undernuck comes into play because he had one of the largest nurseries. And so they were able to get the Texas rootstock over into Europe. And the fact that a guy from Texas was so instrumental, T.V. Munson was only the second American to be given the, um, the Legion of Merit from Napoleon III. Um, Thomas Edison was the first. So the second American to ever get bestowed this uh, award is someone that here in Texas we don't even know about. If you ask any French person, or at least any French person associated with wine, they all know who he is. Uh, there's plaques uh, throughout France. There's statues of him. Allegedly, we were looking into that. Uh, but Cognac and Denison became sister cities. Um, and he's all but unknown. And it's just fascinating that even to this day in the finest vineyards throughout the world, they are still all on Texas rootstock. Yeah, they were desperate. And in fact, I read that they had a huge monetary reward for anyone who could solve this problem. Yeah. I'm not sure if TV months never got paid, but I've, I, I, I wondered that sake. too, because I saw that too. It was something like uh, the equivalent of 2 million us dollars now. Yeah, I think so. Um, so who's TV Munson? Um, now a lot of people will say, well, he's not really Texan, but I kind of go by the 80, 20 rule. He lived most of his life in, in Texas. He, he actually has a few interesting firsts. So he's, he's born in Astoria, Illinois, him uh, and his brother were the first two students at the university of Kentucky. Uh, his brother was the first graduate. Volney was the second. So they made their way to Texas. He first went into Nebraska, but before that, he was fascinated with Texas. And I actually don't know why it is, but he wrote his research paper on uh, Texas horticulture. Um, winds up in what is now Texoma, which apparently was named in honor of T.V. Munson, yet it's called Texoma. Why would you not call it? Munson. Munson AVA. Yeah, right? I don't know. Um, and he claimed that this was one of the most diverse grape places that he had ever come across. So he stayed put in Denison. And the, the story goes that he traveled up to 50,000 miles on horseback, just going all through Texas and finding grapevines. Um, he established vineyards in the Denison area, which Grayson College um, had an opportunity to preserve. They were able to preserve all his work. And I believe he created over... 300 different uh, grape species and mostly hybrids. So that's one of the challenges here in Texas is vinifera doesn't necessarily thrive because we have pretty extreme environments. That's one area which I wish there was more exploration on that side. Like what, what did he do in terms of solving those problems and why don't we see those anymore? One thing I've read is that TV Munson recognized that the soil composition in Texas was very similar to France because it had what they called limey soil. Yeah. So I think that um, we can credit that to him. That that was key in his figuring out what was going yeah, to work. Calcareous soils, especially in, in Texas, it correlates to you know a lot of areas of Chablis and the Loire Valley. Um, we have a lot of terroir that's quite similar. Uh, to France. Um, but where it, so the species that was said that they found, which is Doggridge, is what they, it's called Vitis Champanini. And we might be getting a little too technical on this, but um, there's basically three species native to Texas that most definitely is seen all throughout the wine world it's uh, Berlandieri, Riparia, and Rupestris. So, regardless of which one it actually was, 
it doesn't matter. There's Texas root stocks are instrumental um, throughout the world, and Texans should know this. We should be proud of our impact uh, to the wine industry. Now, of course, from the, the French side, they were a little hesitant in the beginning because the whole reason why they're in this debacle in the beginning is of right. American grape vines. But it didn't come from Texas rootstock. That I do know. It came from uh, Lambrusca grape. came from the East Coast. It went into London. They brought the phylloxera over. So the Texans just had to come in and sweep up after the, the Yankees. I know Viala named one of his daughters uh, after TV Munson. I think also Munson named one of his kids Aww. after them. So they had a very good relationship. Um, but it's... Uh, you know, Texas has a deep history in wine, and I think that because of that gap, you know, a couple generations, uh, you know, when you tell people about Texas wine, a lot of people are, well, huh? There's, there's wine yeah, in Texas, especially if they're, you know, not in around yeah. the Fredericksburg area. So You mentioned that about how the Europeans blame us for phylloxera. I was at, at a tasting at a prestigious champagne house at one point, and the person doing our tasting basically blamed Americans for phylloxera. And I don't think he probably had anybody ever speak back to him, but I said, but you know who solved that? It was an American and here's his name and here's a little of his story. So he was a little taken aback. Should have said Texan. (laughs) Not only American, but Texan also. Well, what's funny, if you were to, uh, and I suggest you try this, if you were to Google most influential people, in the history of wine, you know, the 5,000 plus years. TV Munson's name is always in the top five or top 10. Um, but why don't we know about him here? Yeah. Why well, is you're it? telling the story. I know that we both share an interest in creating new Texas wine drinkers. And one of the ways that, that you're doing that is that you've co-founded Texas Wine Club. And I have a feeling probably everyone who listens to this has seen an ad for Texas Wine Club because you guys are knocking it out of the park on marketing. But just in case someone is not familiar, can you say what Texas Wine Club is? Yes. Um, Texas Wine Club was launched early this year, and we go out and taste wines throughout the state. Now that we have on upwards to 500, the, na- the number, of course, is uh, not exact, but there's a lot of wineries now. And we saw an opportunity to go out, taste as many wines throughout the state, and then have a selection process uh, where we pick the top 12 wines that we come across and send those to people's doors all throughout the state of Texas. There's so many wine drinkers in Texas. So we are 100% Texas wines for Texans. And it, it started through Camber Garland. So she had a tasting group in Hill Country. Um, this is when I was at William Chris, and we would do wine tastings for industry people, mainly uh, winemakers, but there was a couple of wine educators. And what we would do is taste wines in similar environments uh, from the old world. We would get wines from those regions. Um, and it was fun because the, the winemakers can get an idea of what can be done here in Texas. We did that for almost two years, almost every two weeks. And then the light bulb kind of went off um, Josh Ty, who also a co-founder, he was culinary director at William Chris, uh, as interested in wine as anyone being a chef. And the idea emerged, like, why don't we take that concept of these blind tastings? I didn't mention that. So when we do our tastings uh, throughout Europe, we would do them blind. So we had no idea what they were and try to figure out what they are. Um, and we basically started doing that with Texas wineries. So we would go around, um, pick uh, Texas wines, and every two weeks we would just taste through no idea what the wines are, uh, have a, a way to kind of mark and grade numerically which ones perform better, um, and that's how we pick the wine. So we don't know what they are, uh, and it's always fun to see some surprises. So you were able to sit through a tasting yesterday, and we saw a few, actually. Um, I don't know if we should say it, what it is, but um, that I think that's one of the one of the more fun components is being able to discover Texas wine. So not your, you know, your average person doesn't have the ability to get out and, and taste all this Texas wine. Most Texans, in my opinion, assume is that 
when they see that Texas wine section at their local wine shop or, or grocery store, is that that's a representative of the best of Texas. And it's, it's kind of the opposite. Um, those wines that make it to the store um, are really made for that purpose. And there's nothing wrong with wines from the store. Everyone gets wines from the store, myself included. Um, but if you're trying to explore and trying to find uh, the best of Texas, the reality is that you really got to get out there, right? You have to either go to the winery or join a wine club. Those are really the two ways to do it. So then the challenge becomes once you get out there and you taste one of these wines that are not readily available at your local shop, you're like, wow, these are, these are amazing. Um, so you, you join said wine club, right? Well, next thing you know, you have four or five wine clubs, and we see that all the time. Indeed. Um, and so that was another component that we thought was, um, was something that could be attractive to Texans, that they could join one club and be able to taste wines um, from all over Texas. And because we know most people have, it does seem like three or four is about average. Um, and the other thing is, is, is we actually, and like not blowing smoke, we, we actually do promote people to go visit those wines and wineries. So the wines that get selected, we actually uh, provide them information on that winery and how to visit them and recommend that they go taste their wines directly. And if they want to join their wine club and drop ours, we have no penalties. We see it frequently. Um, and we love, uh, actually we just were speaking with Serrano winery and he said that we've sent multiple people to their winery and they've joined and we love hearing that. So, um, those are some of the most common questions I get at the tastings that I'm doing in Dallas is, is where should I go? So I'm in North Texas. So they want to know the closest local wineries. And then if they're making a trip to Lubbock or the Hill country or wherever, um, where should we go visit? To taste in person. Yeah. Um, and they should. They should um, go check them out. And it's, you know, it's about North Texas. It feels like a different country up there. Um, that's the other part that is, we're still exploring. You know, even though we're anchored here in wine country and hill country, um, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of wineries up there that I haven't had a chance to either taste directly um, or visit. So one of the things that now that we have somewhat of a, our name is out there in the industry, they are, people are submitting wines, which is great. Um, but actually we'll, I'll be up there in a couple of weeks to speak to, uh, the North Texas winery association and connect with them and let them know how our, uh, program works, but it's really great for the small to midsize, but, but not exclusive. Um, you know, we have wines from William Chris wine company, uh, McPherson, um, ready again, because we pick them blind. And, uh, if they're from the big guy or the small guy, um, we, we welcome it. Cause we want to just give Texans a real opportunity to, to taste what Texans can do. And it's only getting better, right? Um, we're still trying to figure out the varieties. There's 51 different varieties that we, we have in the state. And, you know, if you look at Spain and Portugal, Portugal more, uh, I think it's the most interesting place. They have so many different grapes. Um, and, and who knows uh, which, which of the grapes from Portugal would work. But as you know, it's a process. Yeah. And it's a multi-year investment to figure that out. Yeah. It's a hard and long uh, process to try to figure out what works. I've been saying Texas has since 70 something. I got that number from the 2022 Texas Department of Agriculture. So it's probably, well, if you think about it, I, you know there's going to be grapes that ha weren't reported. So where did you get the 70 from? It's also from a USDA report, but I think the more recent ones actually grouped some grapes together under other, where it used to break them out. Okay. Um, some challenges getting those reports right. completed. You know, Portugal's 400 plus variety, six, 600 plus in Italy. I don't know what Spain has, probably a couple hundred. And then Southern France, so still trying to figure that out. And that's just the, the vinifera. 
I think that, I don't know where you stand on this, but why not do hybrids? I think if you can make high quality wine, I don't know that most people care if it's a hybrid or a vinifera. Winemakers seem to differ in that opinion. Um, I don't know if it's valid or not, but, um, you know, they're doing, are you familiar with the, the grapes that are, uh, the Walker clones that yep. are coming yep. out of UC Davis. So, um, you, you might know there's a couple of vineyards that have planted those. Mm-hmm. Who are those? Well, in North Texas, Triple N Ranch Winery has two of them. Um, Bending Branch has some, I don't know who else, but I know there are several. So for those who don't know exactly what these Walker clones are, there's a species also native to Texas, but not endemic to Texas. It's Vitis Arizonica. Obviously, it's in Arizona as well. Um, and it's completely resistant to PD, uh, Pierce's disease. So um, by taking that uh, plant and then, say, Cabernet Sauvignon, you, you would um, breed those, and then you have a 50-50. Take the 50% with the 100% cab, and you keep going, and they've gotten it up to 97%. So there's just enough genetic material to be resistant. But the problem is you can't call it Cabernet Sauvignon in that case. And that is, uh, seems like a small problem, um, but marketing is a huge component of wine, right? Um, I don't know if they figured out the naming uh, process yet. Paciente Noir or something like that. I mean, that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But what what I think might be the future for some of those grapes, at least in the shorter term, is some kind of fanciful name. Like if you think about some of the best known labels, you don't actually know what's in that blend. You just know it by its fanciful name. Right. So the Prisoner or whatever, you know, these big brands that are, and the, the blend might change from year to year, but you just know the label and the name. Well, and I don't know if this is a trend that is either valid or will, that it will continue, but, and I know I've been guilty of this, is people want the single varietal wine. You talked about the evolution of what you enjoy in wine, what you appreciate in mm-hmm. wine. Because I started loving wine in California and I was visiting a lot of these you know, high-end producers that tell you this single vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon usually from this exact plot is the highest expression that a wine could possibly hope to be. Right. But what I didn't consider is all the regions of the world where blending is the tradition. So the wines of Rioja and Bordeaux and Champagne, all blends, all blends. So I've backed way, way off, especially in a, in a place like Texas where vintage variation is so significant, mm-hmm. I think blending is really important to our story in the future. Blending can be scary to some because it could be the equivalent of the soup of the day, you know, where they just kind of throw everything together. But at the same time, it's also arguably the finest craft uh, or skill within winemaking. Um, you know, in Bordeaux, for example, the blends, there's no recipe winemaking in Europe, which recipe winemaking is definitely a uh, component of new world winemaking, right? A lot of, and I think Americans are guilty with this, uh, insert, uh, let's just say prisoner. Um, they want prisoner to taste this, uh, the same this year as it did last vintage and the vintage before because it's a brand name. So the expectations because of that, you're almost forcing them to manipulate the wine in order to taste like the previous vintage, right? You know, in Europe, they recognize uh, that it's less about the, the brand itself, and it really it's more about the region and the vintage. And based upon that, you're going to have, you know, if it's drier or wetter or whatever the cold spells come and go, it dictates what's going into the grape. Cabernet is, uh, performs better. You know, it's early budding and Merlot's later, so... That's something we haven't uh, latched onto as consumers. Um, and so I do think it's the highest skill, and there are some amazing blends out there, but there's definitely there's some who are a little hesitant because you know some there's some wineries that just kind of mix it all together. And That's true. That's true. You do have to know what you're getting. And I will say one of my favorite Texas Wine Club wines 
is a blend of six different varieties. And it's been consistently one of the favorite wines that I've poured at my tasting events. So I always tell my little blending story. So I don't think that single varietal wines are always the very best because check out this awesome blend. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that even I'm appreciating more and more. One of the things we saw an opportunity to do with the Texas Wine Club is we we didn't we didn't realize that education would be such an integral part. Obviously, as a wine educator, it's it's a role that I can fulfill. Um, I thought I'd be more involved in the curation and you know putting content out there, which of course we're doing. But the educational side has been something that became apparent that was uh, more important for those in Texas because there's a lot of varieties out there. Not everyone is familiar with them. So one of the things that I used to do at William Chris, when people would say, what is Pickpool or what is Mavad, uh, even Grenache to some degree, uh, but um, Roussan, Marsan, not everyone is familiar with it. So I would always tell them, Go and find that grape in the old world. See what it tastes like in its place of origin. Um, and then taste the Texas wines. And eat, in an even better situation, taste them side by side. And I think that uh, anyone who really wants to understand Texas wine should do that. They should go find a Tempranillo from Spain and a Tempranillo from Texas. So one of the things that we just started doing is we offer um, just that. We'll pick... Um, in the case of a 12-pack of wines, it would be six grapes, and you would have the Old World version and the Texas version, and just give you an opportunity to see what it tastes like uh, in its place of origin and where we're going with it. So it's a fun way to, to learn about wine, so that's something new that we're doing. Tell me this. Outside of Texas wine, I know you drink a ton of Texas wine, but yes. where else in the world are you drinking right now? What are you excited about? If I am not drinking Texas wines, it's generally going to be Georgian wines, which are tough to come by. And no, not Atlanta, Georgia, um, in, in Portugal. And one of the main reasons for Portugal is I'm fascinated with Alentejo because I think that is the closest analog that we have in Europe to Texas Hill Country. And with 400 plus varieties, um, that's that's the motivating factor. Like, let's, what, what tastes good there? Um, and just better understanding those grapes. But there's an interesting connection between the two. Do you know what it is? Is it a grape variety? No. So no. Georgian wines have a, a unique style of winemaking that uses the queveries. Yes. And this is little known, but there is actually a DOC in Alentejo. I think it's called... Tala D-O-C. So T-A-L-H-A. That's their version of Quevery. Oh, really? And they both originated from the same uh, Roman, uh, I guess, ancestry. Um, the difference is, actually, they use, some in some cases, the exact same vessels. And Portugal has since somewhat lost their history of, of making these mm -hmm. ta these talas. I think there's only like one or two guys left, or maybe there's only one or two making them and they're learning from the Georgians, something like it's, it's very interesting. Uh, so sometimes they'll acquire them from Georgia, but the main difference is in Georgia, they're underground. Yep. And in Portugal, they're above ground. And so they, they hose them off so cool. to keep them cool. So really cool stuff uh, happening in Georgia, but yeah, you always got to keep exploring it. So those are my two spots right now. I love that. Have you been to the Austin Winery to see they're, they're working with the Quevries over there? Are they really? Uh -huh. You do see a couple places using the terracotta, but uh, Austin Winery is a wine that was recently selected. It was, oh, is that right? Yeah, they have a really cool things going on mm -hmm. down there. Um, have you seen the movie, Our Blood is Wine? Is that about... It's no, I'm thinking of blood into wine or blood is wine. I've not seen that. It's about Georgia. It's about the country of Georgia. No. And their wine history. And it's shot on an iPhone apparently. And it is exceptionally good. And it, I think it's on Amazon prime and it delves into a lot of the, the history around wine, viticulturally, 
winemaking, but also just like sitting around a dining room table singing songs about wine in another language. It's very cool. You should check they, it out. They get into, there's this, these Toastmasters when they drink. And uh, apparently if you venture into Georgia and you actually get to sit around a table uh, with locals, you're going to have a long night because it's, it's really, uh, drinking is a big part of their, their dinner and celebration. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, those are, those are my two. What are you drinking right now? What's your spots? Um, well, right now I am studying for French wine scholar okay. in preparation for this trip I'm leading in April. We're going to the Rhone and, and then ending in Bordeaux. So I've been studying the Rhone chapter and the Loire chapter. That's exciting. And I always drink Beaujolais, no matter what I'm studying. So those are kind of my regions. Beaujolais, the best, maybe best value in the... Perhaps, uh, although it's going up. <laughs> if you get the crew, because yeah. it's basically Burgundian wine. Right. And it's 30, 40 bucks. Yeah. I'm a, I'm love Gamay. Yeah. Go drink some Beaujolais crew. On that note, thanks for being here, Clay. Anytime. My pleasure, Shelly. Yes. Good talking with you. You too. Thanks, Clay. In the show notes, I'll link to the signups for the Texas Wine Club tasting experiences that Clay references. They're happening in several cities around the state, and I'm leading the tastings in Dallas, so come see me there. You can also find out about the club and the different options that are available. We didn't get into it on the recording, but Texas Wine Club has also opened a tasting room in High. They're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 to 5 for a Best in Texas guided tasting of five wines. So check that out at txwine.com. I'm also dropping links for Dr. Russ Kane's blog, where you can keep up to date about his latest classes, including the Specialist of Texas Wine, and a link to Our Blood is Wine, one of my favorite wine documentaries that's available on Amazon Prime. And finally, you heard me mention a trip that I'm organizing to France in April 2024. It's a small group trip with a maximum of 10 travelers who will go with me and my Texas wine partner in crime, Pablo Valky. We're taking a group to see the original homeland of some of the most popular grapes in Texas. We'll be visiting wineries that have Texas ties, exploring the best food and wine of the Southern Rhone, and then on to Bordeaux. You heard Clay talk about how Denison, Texas, and Cognac, France are sister cities. We'll be spending an afternoon in Cognac on a quest to find the TV Munson plaque. Pablo describes this trip as an adult study abroad trip. Well, you don't have to be a Texas wine scholar necessarily, but we'll be doing some thorough investigation of the best wineries, vineyards, foods, and cultural sites in France. Pablo and I have had a lot of inquiries lately, but there are still spots available on this trip. So please reach out soon and let's see if we can get this trip sold out. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. This is the time in the podcast when I ask you to do something for me. And there are a couple of things that you can do for me today that are free and help grow the podcast. One is to share the podcast with others. You can do that on social media by tagging at Texas Wine Pod in your stories and posts. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and leave a few remarks. And finally, visit my website to sign up for the occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you on my recent wine events and fun finds in wine and travel. And now it's time for a gold star. This gold star is kind of Texas wine adjacent, and it's for the podcast series, Meet Me at the Wagon. It's a sponsored podcast series by the Perini Ranch Steakhouse and Texas Monthly Podcast Studio. I started listening to the last episode first because I wanted to hear all about the Buffalo Gap Wine and Food Summit and the role that Becker Vineyards had in that special event that sadly I never had the opportunity to attend. Dr. Becker is there on the podcast giving some great Texas wine history. But the whole six-episode arc is special, and I'd recommend it. It's part history lesson with a bit of a marketing angle and a reminder about the importance of America's farmers and ranchers. You can find it by searching Meet Me at the Wagon on your podcast player. 
And on a related note, I'd love to see some Texas wineries use a limited series podcast format to chronicle their history, and I could help with that if anyone's considering it. Finally, I'd like to remember two Texas winery owners who will be missed. Gary Gilstrap of Texas Hills Vineyard passed away on September 24th. Texas Hill Country Winery said in a social media post that Gary and his wife Kathy were there at the very beginning of the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association. In 1999, they brought the idea of promoting Hill Country Wineries by creating a map and hosting trail events to their neighboring wineries. They started with eight members and quickly grew to 16 before the launch of the first event. For many years, they ran the association out of their tasting room. They managed the website, hosted the 1-800 number, mailed all of the trail tickets, and so much more. Texas Hill Country wineries just wouldn't be where they are today without the vision and passion of Gary Gilstrap, and he will be missed. And this month, Ed Aller, the co-founder of Fall Creek Vineyards, passed away. Ed was a past president of the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, and he drafted the legal documentation that resulted in the formation of the Texas Hill Country AVA in 1991. In a social media post, his wife Susan Aller stated that his visionary leadership and unwavering commitment have been the cornerstone of our company's success. We take solace in knowing that all Fall Creek Vineyards team members share his passion and enthusiasm, and we are dedicated to continuing the legacy he imprinted on all of us. More tributes are sure to be pouring in for Ed, who was a true Texas wine pioneer. Russ Kane once wrote, If anyone can lay claim to the title, the Texas Robert Mondavi, it is Ed Aller. And that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with the one and only Kim McPherson. Until then, you can get in touch. Send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Finally, thank you to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next trip to a Texas winery. Thanks for listening and happy Texas Wine Month. Cheers, y'all.